Today we're looking at another installment in our Overcoming, Always Overcoming series. Today, Overcoming My Self-Centeredness. I'd like to begin by saying, hello, I'm Clark and I'm self-centered. <laughs> because when I come to church, I kind of feel a bit like I'm going to a meeting of the self-centered anonymous. The good news is that we're all in the same boat together. And I know this will be encouraging to you, so I want you to turn to a neighbor and say, you're self-centered too. <laughs> Doesn't that make you feel better? And then, <laughs> oh yeah, it's anonymous, that's right, I forgot. <laughs> Maybe I should say unanimous <laughs> instead of anonymous. But here's another thing you can say, turn to the other neighbor this time and say, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? Okay. Self-centered. We're good at turning a God's glory moment into a look-at-me moment. We human beings have a tendency to do that. I think most of us recognize that as a tendency. We even see that in Scripture. We can see it from Jesus as he was collecting his group of people after he'd been working with the twelve for a time. And then we start to see the work starting to expand. And so he gets the 72, and he trains them, he equip, equips them to go out two by two. They're going to go out on what essentially is kind of like a mission trip. And he's given them the equipment, the training, and the authority to do some things that he knew were going to be life-changing, not just for the people they were coming in contact with, but as is the case when we go on mission trips, it changes us. And it was going to change their hearts as well. He knew that. So they returned from being out doing what Jesus had sent them to do. And look what they say. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You see that little subtlety there? They're grabbing the spotlight which was turned on God's glory. And they just kind of pivoted around and put it on themselves a little bit. And look what Jesus says in response to that. There's a however. He says, yes. He kind of commends them a little bit. He says, yes, I gave you the authority to do this, to cast out demons, to heal people, to do the things that you were doing. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus has a way of getting right to the heart of the matter and showing them what really matters. And Jesus' purposes are always eternal. Everything he came to do was eternal. And so much of what we humans try to do is to make them temporal. And he's saying, what happens in a week if you don't have quite the success, if you don't knock one out of the park on your mission trip next week? What happens the week after? What happens if suddenly you start encountering persecution? As we know, some of them did. A lot of them did later. What happens if you're coming back and you think, oh man, I tried to cast this one out, but it wouldn't come out. We see that happening somewhere else. In the New Testament as well. And he says sometimes these things can only happen through prayer and fasting. Jesus is trying to show them some things about themselves. So basically he's trying to say turn the spotlight off of yourselves. Don't rejoice in the fact that now I've given you this grand ability. So you can brag about that ability and go out and be a super spiritual person. Be glad that your names are written in heaven. What happens if the worst thing happens, like I mentioned last week in the message? What happens if the worst thing happens and somebody kills you because you stand up for me and you become a martyr? Are you going to be okay then? 
The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he yet slay me, I will trust him. And he's trying to teach these disciples that important lesson. Because it's a subtle shift. And sometimes we're good at doing it so that we're not even aware we're doing it. It's subconscious that we're turning God's glory and trying to take it for ourselves. It's like a look-at-me phone filter. You know, I know that some of you are familiar with Snapchat. We'll get these funny, goofy pictures from my grandkids in South Carolina. And they'll hold the phone up to their face, and it grabs their face and then throws another filter on top of it so they look like a donkey or some cute little thing or something. Well, it's like when God does something glorious and he's displaying his glory and his beauty to me and wants to, to do it to others through me, it's like I want to grab my phone filter and push a button and hold it up and go, hey. <laughs> and God had done something so beautiful and I turn into something so goofy. Because how can I possibly arrest what God's beauty looks like and try to take credit for that? What's needed most to overcome self-centeredness is forgiveness. And you might think of that at first by think, thinking, I don't see the connection. What do you mean forgiveness? We haven't been talking about the need for forgiveness. We're talking about self-centeredness. Why do I need forgiveness? That's why we're here today. Mark 2, I've mentioned this many times. I've referred to it in the last couple of weeks, in fact. That wonderful story about the paralytic man. He had friends that came, loved that guy enough to be a real friend to him. And they knew that the only guy they'd heard about who had the power to heal was this Jesus character who was teaching in a house that was so packed, nobody could get in to see him. So they haul him up to the roof on the steps, which were common back then, cut a hole in the roof, drop the man down on a pallet in front of Jesus. Now, we might think that if I were the man on the mat, I'd be let down in front of Jesus. What is my hope? You're going to get healed. Sure. I'm thinking, yay, my friends care about me. They're bringing me to this healer guy, and I'm going to walk out of here because he's going to heal me. What is the first thing that Jesus says to this guy? Son, your sins are forgiven. Because I'm me, and I use my imagination a lot, I put myself in the place of that man on the mat, not necessarily in his shoes, because I don't know if he was wearing shoes, but on his mat, and I might be thinking at about that point, uh, Master, can't you clearly see that I have a bigger need than to be forgiven? And everything Jesus does in this scenario is like he's saying, no, you don't. No, your biggest need is forgiveness. And he's doing it not just for that man, but he's doing it for those skeptics and the religious people who have so distorted God and tried to make him out to be something that could allow them to control other people that he knew what was in their hearts. And he's thinking, why are you thinking to yourselves, who is he to forgive sins? Only God alone can do that. It's like, okay, yep, that's kind of the truth that comes out of that. That's true. Only God can do that. And then Jesus, to prove that he is God, God incarnate, God the Son, says, and so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, pick up your mat and walk. So the guy gets both. He gets forgiven, which is his greatest need, and he gets to walk as a testimony to God's power. All in the same situation. Pretty amazing. So Jesus gets right to the chase. He says, your greatest need, and your greatest need, and yours, and yours, and yours, is forgiveness. Whatever else we might try to ask for, even as we're trying to get rid of our self-centeredness, the greatest need is forgiveness. Every day, 
This is what we're focusing on today. Every day, I'm allowing Christ to overcome my self-centered tendencies by realizing my own need for forgiveness. We're really good at minimizing our own sin and selfishness. We just really are. The truth shall set you free. And I read something from John Ortberg this week that I really liked. But first, the truth will make you miserable. How true that is. For example, who is that actor? Have you had this conversation with friends of yours? We do this at home all the time. Especially the old folks in our house will say to the younger person in our house, hey, I'm trying to think of that movie. You know that one movie? And you throw out just enough details to say it, it happened like this and this thing happened and then this guy came up and said that. And we're being really cryptic. Amazingly, my daughter finds a way to come up with the right answer, even though we're feeding her these crazy cryptic things. So then we come up with the right answer. But then somebody says, oh, yeah, and who was the lead actor in that? Who played that main guy? And you can look at them with confidence and say, that was Robert De Niro. And they go, no, that's not him. And you're going, no, I know it was De Niro. I watched that. Well, how can you be sure that you know? I know that I know. I've watched that movie. I trust my memory. I have a great memory. The whole time I'm saying that, somebody's tapping on their phone and they hold up the phone and hold it out, and I go, Al Pacino? <laughs> and then you're miserable for, a, for just a minute. You know, Maybe if your pride is big, maybe more than a minute, but you're miserable because you're going, wait a minute, is it possible? I guess it is possible that I might have been incorrect in this one instance. <laughs> it, yeah, it was Al Pacino. So the truth will set you free, but first it's going to make you miserable. And I think that in itself is a good truth for us to recognize because if we're going to get past our self-centeredness, we have to get past being miserable and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us because He is the Spirit of truth and He knows where we need to be changed. I do many things, John Ortberg says, that I'm not aware of in order to avoid the truth. I compartmentalize my thoughts in brilliant and skillful ways. I use whatever perspective that helps me think about myself the way I want to think about myself. <laughs> that's what we are because of our human condition. And that's so true. The same tendency, and Jesus knew this, it exists even in people who claim to be Jesus followers. In his day, it was people who thought they were serving Yahweh, and they might call them Pharisees. But the same tendency can exist in people who call themselves Christians and are really trying to be conformed into Christ's image, but that same tendency still lurks there. How do we know that? Because Apostle Paul told us that, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. I forgot this, though. What do you call a religious person? This is a good riddle. What do you call a religious person who's never wrong? A Pharisee. And I started to write this when I was making my slides. I started to put a modern-day Pharisee. And I thought, no, a Pharisee is a Pharisee. I don't care when you're living. It might have been 2,000 years ago, but you can still be a Pharisee because deep in the heart of a Pharisee is the, the feeling that I am somehow morally superior to you and I'm going to hold you to my standards even though I'm not really aware that I'm breaking some of my own rules. That's what a Pharisee was like, and that's why Jesus came down so stinking hard on him in the New Testament. You ever want to see when Jesus got really ticked off? It was because of folks like the Pharisee. I can never forgive someone as long as I feel superior to him or her. I've mentioned this before, and I bring it back up again because I think it's true. 
as God has been nagging at my heart to forgive somebody for a mild offense, I realize, oh man, God's revealing to me again that I'm feeling superior and that somehow it's up to them. They need to make the first move. You know, I've got a phone. They could call me. They need to recognize that they were in the wrong. Think, oh, but wait a minute. I can still forgive that person, and I need to, just as Christ forgave me. Unless you know, we're going to look at these three points. Unless you know who you really are in Christ, you won't be able to admit your own sinful tendencies, avoid certain types of solutions to your real problem. I'm not going to give that one to you just yet because I'm baiting you. Uh, you won't be able to apply the blank solution to your real problem either. Let's look at that first one, admitting your own sinful tendencies. As I begin to know who I am in Christ, as I start to really formulate my true identity, which is Christ's child, a forgiven sinner who is going to reflect God's glory to other people. That's my purpose in life. That's my greatest purpose in life. The best thing I can do and the most long-lasting Fulfilling thing I can do is to reflect God's glory. As I know who I am in Christ, I can admit my own sinful tendencies. Let me say that one more time so you've got it. As I know who I am in Christ, I can admit my own sinful tendencies. Paul says that. I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. One side of the gospel coin, Romans 7. The other side is Romans 8. But he says, instead, I do the very thing that I don't want to do, the evil that I don't want to do. Paul even uses the word evil. This is one of the words that's translated from his original. Instead, I do that very thing, that thing that evil that I don't want to do, and I wind up doing it. It is the sin that is living where? Within me. This is important. This is a good theological foundational truth, folks. It's not from some force coming at me from the outside. Paul recognizes that. It is the sin that resides within me. That's where this stuff is growing from. And we're all sinful at the core. So Paul recognizes that. And then we got, of course, the other side, which is the Romans 8, the other side of the coin, which is when we get past the point of being miserable. And that's when he says, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another example, Genesis 4, goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. You got Adam and Eve, and then the first two kids, Cain and Abel, brothers. I've got grandboys. I know what brothers can be like, okay? <laughs> but this got even out of hand more than usual because Cain and Abel both gave an offering. It's almost like God knows what's in Cain's heart. <laughs> Sometimes God knows more stuff than I do. And he starts to confront Cain because he's understanding that because Cain's offering wasn't acceptable somehow, Cain is getting upset, and he's getting upset at Abel. So God confronts him, and look what God says. God is a, a pretty good teacher. <laughs> and he's also good at creating his own analogies, which he does here. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it, Cain. Now, looking at the story, and many of us know that, did Cain rule over what was crouching at his door? No, unfortunately. He killed his brother. So he didn't rule over that. Let's look at God's analogy, which he gave us in his statement to Cain, crouching. What is it that people crouch for? Why do you crouch? It's to hide. 
It's going to be crouching at the door. It's hidden. Sin hides itself from us. That's why it's so imperceptible sometimes that we're doing strange things to try to manipulate ourselves into thinking that what we did was actually noble when what we did was sinful. That's how tricky it can be because it hides, it crouches. And so it's waiting to devour. I had told you before that when I was on a mission trip to Zimbabwe, I got to go on a lion walk after we'd done teaching to a bunch of pastors there. And uh, my brother-in-law knew the owner of this lion park, and they would let you walk with 90-pound teenaged lions. And there were two of them, and my brother-in-law and I and my other brother-in-law, Paul, were doing that. And we had these sticks, these big long sticks that they would say, if he comes at it, just hold your stick up and poke it in the nose. Uh, Okay. And then the other rule was, don't take your eyes off of it. Because they, they'll be able to take advantage of a moment. And it's so funny because you'd see them playing with each other. They'd go off in the brush and they'd start playing with each other. And they're practicing their pouncing skills like cats do, except they're 90 pounds. And so then my brother-in-law, Paul, has to go across this little crack between two boulders as he's walking. So he takes his eyes off of one of the lions that's pouncing and he starts to get over there. You know what happens? He pounced. 90 pounds of lion. <laughs> right on Paul's back. And Paul goes, <laughs> He goes right down, drops the stick. Of course, the, the trainer was right there, and he pokes the lion off, and it was all fine. Paul lived to tell about it. Now he can has bragging rights because he says, I was attacked by a lion <laughs> on a mission trip. But they want to pounce like that. They're waiting to devour. And God is showing Cain that this thing is crouching at the door. Some translations even put the word lion in there because I think they see that that's the illusion. It's crouching at your door, and it's waiting to pounce on you. And if we feed that sin, it grows bigger and bigger until pretty soon it has a boomerang effect, and it'll come back, and it will actually devour you. The very sin that you were trying to hide that's crouching at your door will devour you. I want to read a couple of these things that I got from some other pastor in New York. He said, that's why gossipers get gossiped about. That's why cowards get deserted. That's why criticizers get severely criticized. Because it comes around and it gets them. The very thing that they've been feeding and trying to hide from themselves, it's a what goes around comes around situation. And we see it happening all the time. We saw it when we were going through our weekend Bible study about the prophets. And it happened to Israel time and again. It's a very similar principle. So we may think we're hiding these sins. But they're crouching at the door and we just keep feeding them if we don't accept them, own up to them, and get forgiven from them so that we can move past that into the forgiveness zone. Feed your sin and it will grow large enough to devour you. As we know who we are in Christ, we're constantly picking up our cross and our sins are constantly being killed so that they don't kill us. That's a paraphrase of some of Paul's teaching in the New Testament. He says... It's no longer I, but it's I've been crucified with Christ. I'm a new creation in him. The old me has been crucified with him. And he recognizes that in this process, it's a daily event too. There's the I have been saved. That's the justification. I've been forgiven. But now I'm starting that journey of sanctification. Now it's a daily walk with Christ. I have to keep picking up that cross knowing that I still have these tendencies, and so I have to keep nailing them to the cross and identifying with Christ who will kill those sins in my life so that I don't feed them so that they don't come back to devour me. 
When you realize who you are in Christ, you can not only admit your own sinful tendencies, but you can also avoid false solutions to your real problem. You know what the greatest false solution is that we try to do as human beings, I think? We try really hard to just avoid the consequences of sin. We're good at just trying to avoid the consequences. Well, if I don't get caught, or if I don't get punished for this, I must still be okay then. So that's not really taking care of the root problem, as you can imagine. Let me use a guy. This is from a long time ago. It was in Arizona. I was finishing up college. I was a uh, part-time music director in a small church in Arizona. We knew a guy in our church. He was verbally abusive to his wife. Now, I knew that. The pastor knew that. His wife knew that. Not too many people in the church knew that because he was good at covering over that and making it look like everything was fine when he was at church. But he was verbally abusive. He never, as far as we knew, he never laid a hand on his wife. He wasn't physically abusive, but he would demean her and talk down to her and make her feel less than all the time. He loved to control her. And he was rude. He was just rude that way. Until finally she got fed up with it. She had enough. And she left and went and moved in with a relative for a while. And this guy shows up, and he's weeping and crying in the pastor's office. I was the associate pastor, so that wasn't me, but it was with the pastor. And he's so distraught. He goes, oh, it's my mouth. My mouth always gets me into trouble. I know I need to get a handle on this mouth of mine. It's so terrible. Would you please call her in, and let's have some counseling sessions? I'll do whatever it takes. I feel so bad. So the pastor intervenes. He calls the wife. She comes in. He cries and weeps again over all this stuff. She believes him moves back in with the kids into the house again. And for a few weeks, everything's pretty good. And then just a few weeks down the road, it all escalates and goes right back to the way he was before. And this time she'd had enough. So she left him for good that time. But here's the thing. Here's what we learned from this one example. It's a negative example, but it's true. That if we love power and control more than we love our spouse, We can lie to ourselves in thinking that what we're doing is acceptable behavior. And it's sin that's crouching at our door that will come around and it will destroy us. And it'll destroy a marriage. We need to deal with the root cause. If he loved his wife enough, he would have literally done anything he could have to express his love to her, including killing that sin of his and lifting her up and making her feel special and valued and cherished rather than demeaning her all the time. He didn't love his spouse. He didn't love God. If he loved God enough, he would have recognized that every time he did that, he was sinning against God too, like David says in the Psalms. Lord, I've sinned against you. He was sinning against God every time he sinned against his wife that way. But you know what he loved? He loved power and control. So if we love something that much, we need to have a replacement, and that's exactly what Jesus does for us on the cross. He took our place on the cross so that we could replace those things that are in our past and in our lives with something that's a greater love that brings us greater satisfaction. And when we love God enough, He will satisfy us in ways that we can never be satisfied by anything else. Everything else is an idol, and it falls short of our love for God. When you know Christ, and when you know who you are in Him, you get your identity wrapped up in Christ. You can admit your own sinful tendencies, You can avoid false solutions to your real problem. And then you can apply the true solution to your real problem. 
And that true solution means that you've got to allow the Spirit of Christ, also known as the Spirit of truth in the New Testament, to deal truthfully with you. I've quoted Joy's dad often because I love what he says when he says, get to know who you really are. You've got to learn how to tell yourself the truth. That's a really good, wise statement. You have to learn to tell yourself the truth. Now, as I'm preparing a message on telling the truth and learning to recognize when things are not true in my own life so that I need to own up to it, because sometimes I am wrong. <laughs> we had a funny incident, and I'm telling on myself because I want you to know that I'm not there yet. I'm still in the sanctification process, all right? But Joy and I were getting this group text from somebody, and it had another person's name on there as well, asking us to pray for a situation. We get that from time to time, which I really appreciate, because I'll do that. I'll pause right there on the spot and pray for that text immediately, as I was doing. And we got later on into our day, and Joy said, well, Steve let me know that uh, he appreciated the prayers because things have gone well. And I said, Stephanie. He goes, what? I said, Stephanie. I've been, I've been praying for Stephanie all day. That's, it says S-T-E-F-A, and I start spelling the name, which is a really kind thing to do. S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E, Stephanie. My phone says, see, look, it's, it's Stephanie. I wanted to show her that it's not my glasses this time. I was looking at the word Stephanie. She says, well, what number do you, and so we start comparing phone numbers. It's possible it's just possible that I might have typed the wrong phone number of somebody into this contact <laughs> so that it came up as Stephanie, even though it was actually Steve. So fortunately, Stephanie and Steve both got prayed for. <laughs> God turned that into a really good thing. So Stephanie, I want you to know I was praying for you all day Friday. I'm hoping you had a tremendous day. <laughs> Yay! That's... That's unintentional. I'm so unintentionally prayerfully hip. And I just turned the spotlight on myself, which means I lost it. I lost it. Get to know who you really are. And, I, and I, again, when the truth comes out, you're miserable. When I started to realize what was going on, I was miserable because I had to admit, oh, yeah, that's on me. But you've got to get miserable first before you can move through to the now there is no condemnation part, the Romans 8 side of the gospel. And then, fortunately, I have a loving wife who forgave me. I am so grateful for her. Thank you, honey. And then we need to continually allow God's Holy Spirit to retune our hearts. We were talking about tuning and piano tuning and some other things. And this fellow over here who plays the piano for us sent me something and I remember reading about it years ago, but I, I looked it up again, and I was thrilled with it because it fits exactly what I'm talking about here. There's an interesting, very true story about the young man who wrote the lyrics to Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. It's an amazing story. The guy grew up, got messed up with the wrong kind of people in a gang. They were actually going to go to a church service and throw bricks and, and try to disrupt the service. That was their intent. Instead, he got to listening to a powerful sermon by George Whitfield, the famous preacher back then, and he got saved. Then he got so uh, amazingly saved that he started feeling a sense of call to preach and became a really profound preacher through his earlier years. So starting at like about 18, he started really preaching, and God was using him in some powerful ways. Then he wrote these lyrics to this hymn. 
Jesus sought me when a stranger, writing about his own salvation experience. He sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Gorgeous, beautiful poetry. Talking about Christ's salvation that came through the cross because that's what drew him to God's love. It was demonstrated on the cross. He was 22 when he wrote that. 22 years of age. Amazing. And then he writes this, and this is the part I'm getting to because of piano tuning. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, which is like a shackles, handcuffs, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, to God. Prone to wander, he says. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Gorgeous words, and he meant every one of them. Unfortunately, years later, he started reading some of the philosophies of man and became enamored with one man's writing in particular that started to draw him away into a stronghold that Satan allowed to build up into his life. And he was straying from that close relationship which he once enjoyed, which was bringing him such joy and satisfaction at the time he wrote this hymn. But God has a way of putting the right people in our path when we need them. Because he was writing, because this is like an 18th century preacher, he was writing in a carriage, and the woman sitting across from him was doing what some people would do for their devotional reading. She was reading out of a hymnal. It's a great devotional thought because there's such good theology in hymns. And she was reading one in particular and started humming the tune. And he said, what's that? And she started singing it. Come thou fount of every blessing. She said, what do you think about that hymn? And like a dagger, it hit him and he started to weep. And listen to what he says. He said, madam... I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I could enjoy the feeling of assurance that I had back then. The very one who wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he was wandering. And his own words came back to convict him. The words inspired by the spirit of truth. The Spirit who can reveal to us the truth that we are all wanderers and we are desperate to be brought back into being in tune with Him. There's a perfect tune of 440 hertz that's A, just above middle C. That's what we tune to in orchestras and bands, at least in America. There's a Baroque tuning. It's a little different. We're not going to get into that. But when somebody in an orchestra says, and the conductor stands up and taps his stand and says, give me an A, the oboist will give a perfect A, right at 440, bing, right in the center of that tone. Everybody else takes their tone from that so that we're playing in tune with one another. And when we start to fall out of tune, which is what this hymn is all about, we're wandering away from that like a piano. The piano keys are getting hammered on every week until those strings stretch and they become out of tune until pretty soon it just sounds like noise. And God says, I'll retune your heart. Come back and gaze into my loving face Look at the cross and look at how much I love you. Yes, you're so sinful that Christ had to die for you. But you're so loved that Christ was willing to die for you. Let me retune your heart to sing my praise. Oh, would you retune your hearts? Let's pray. Father, I recognize it so strongly in my own heart 
that I know I'm not alone. I'm grateful for that, but I know that all of us have these tendencies that we've talked about today. And it's because we try to make ourselves these little gods, these little autonomous beings who can make up our own rules and do the things that we think are right because they feel right at the moment or whatever. And God, you keep showing us again and again and again because you're relentless with your love. And you chase us down and you show us again and again, I loved you enough to die for you. I loved you enough to die for you. I loved you enough to die in your place. Would you see how much I love you? And I pray that you, through that cross, will draw us back into perfect 440. It will be beautifully in tune so that our heartstrings are resonating at exactly the same frequency as your loving heart. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.